We're going to read from the Word of God this morning. Uh, There are blue Bibles on your seats. If you haven't got one, you're welcome to use that and take it home with you as a gift from us. And we're going to read from our first passage is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. It's on page 472. And this is what it says. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Who is Jesus? It is one of the most important questions that anyone can ask and answer. But it's still a pretty general question. It's like asking, who is Muhammad? Or who is Genghis Khan? Or who is Kim Kardashian? The general question is an important one, that's for sure. But perhaps even more important is making that question personal. Who is Jesus to you? See, who Kim Kardashian is to you is of little or no consequence. But who Jesus is to you is probably the most important question that you will ever answer in your life. And before you answer the personal question, you must first answer the general question. See, it's no good believing in a Jesus who is just a made-up Jesus. There's no point pinning your life and your hopes on a Jesus that you like, but bears no resemblance to the real Jesus. This morning's passage invites us to consider both questions. Because who Jesus is will unavoidably shape who he is to you. Here at the end of Matthew chapter 3, we have a significant chapter in God's grand story of creation and redemption. There are two sections to this passage which I've given the following headings if you are taking notes. One, the new God, and two, the Son of God. Both of these describe who Jesus is. So let's start with our first heading in our first section from this morning's passage, the new God, the new God. (laughs) Guard, guard, thank you. Now, seeing as it's been a little while since we last preached on Matthew, we've had a few uh, hiccups that have uh, delayed our series. Allow me to reorient us in the book as to what we are actually up to. Now, you might remember that the gospel or the book of Matthew opens with a genealogy. Kids, can anyone remember what a genealogy is? 
tricky word. Big kids, it grants you three wishes. Not that helpful. Kids, anyone else? Anyone remember? It's a list of a family history. Do you remember that? In chapter 1 of Matthew. Father of, father of, Abraham was the father of, etc. And the purpose of that genealogy, which Matthew opens his book with, is to highlight for us the significance of who Jesus is. Right from the get-go, Matthew is underscoring the significance of the fact that Jesus is from the line of David. And this is significant because the promised Messiah and the King of the Jews from the Old Testament was prophesied to come from the line of David. And this was highlighted again when the Magi from the East came searching for the King of the Jews. And we saw how the events of Jesus' childhood fulfilled the main thrust of the Old Testament. Several times Matthew says this was to fulfill this um, scripture. And when we came to the beginning of chapter 3, we were introduced to the last prophet of the old guard, who was, anyone remember? John the Baptist. As we saw that week, his purpose was to be the one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Now, kids, I've got another question for you. Does anyone remember what John the Baptist wore and what he ate? Anybody? Yes. He ate locusts and anything else? And honey? Yep. And what did he wear? Yeah. Goat skin? Goat camel was an animal. That's fine. Camel's hair and a leather belt. That's right. And here's a little bit of a tricky one. Does anyone remember whom John the Baptist dressed like from the Old Testament? That was for the kids. But yes, thank you. Elijah. John the Baptist was dressed like Elijah. He, was look, he came looking and sounding a lot like Elijah. John would be the one that the Old Testament described as the Elijah who was to come. And Jesus actually confirms this later on in Matthew eleven thirteen to 14. He says he is Elijah who is to come. And so John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance. He said, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent. Telling the Jews who came, repent and be baptized. And after the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to John, he saw their hypocrisy, he saw their lack of fruit, and he warned them of the wrath to come. And then he says this in verse 11 of our chapter. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." John's ministry and his baptism were all preparation for the coming of Jesus. His baptism was symbolic of the need for those who wanted to enter the kingdom of heaven to repent and to be washed. And John's baptism didn't save or cleanse anyone from their sin, but he prepared the way for the one who would. You see, listen to what he says about why he baptized in John 1, 31. 
He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. That was the purpose of John's ministry. Now, all of this is really important background for our passage this morning. See, John is like the warm-up act for the main event. If you've ever been to uh, some kind of show or something, they have somebody come along and they prepare everybody for the main, main deal. That's like what John is doing. He's getting everybody ready for the one whose sandals he is not worthy to carry. He's getting everyone ready for the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But John is not only that. He is also like the final character in the first volume of a three-volume series. He is the last of the old God. The old covenant era and its dependence on the law and all that it embodied and all that it foreshadowed and it typified was about to give way to the new covenant. It was about to give way to the new era of Jesus' reign as king and saviour. And our passage this morning marks the very beginning of that transition, of that shift from the old God to the new God. Let's read from verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptised by him. Now remember that Jesus grew up in Nazareth in the region of Galilee in the north. John was preaching and baptizing in the wilderness of Judea in the south. So Jesus traveled some ways in order to come and see him. But he wasn't just coming to see him, wasn't he? Was he? He wasn't just coming to, to see his cousin, you know, who knows how much they knew each other as they grew up. No, there was a purpose for which Jesus came to see John, which was to be baptized by him. The Bible tells us that his purpose was to be baptized. Jesus knew why he was coming. And as we just heard, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of confessing sin. So if we know that that's what John's baptism was, and we know that Jesus came to be baptized by John, well, that puts us in a bit of a dilemma, doesn't it? Because what does the Young Baptist Catechism remind us about Jesus? Question 53, did Jesus ever sin? Zai? Can you give us the answer? Did Jesus ever sin? No, Jesus never sinned. That's right. You can turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21 to see that stated very clearly. So now we have a problem, don't we? Why would Jesus come to John to be baptized by him if his baptism was a baptism of repentance? Jesus has nothing to repent of. If you're wondering that, then you're wondering what John was probably also wondering. Let's read verse 14. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? The ESV translates this fairly literally, but the sense is stronger than how this sounds. John would have prevented him. is basically saying that he's not going to let Jesus do it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. You're coming to me? That's, that's, this is not how it's supposed to work. And we only get a sentence here, so it's hard to know exactly the reasons that would have been going on in John's mind. But I think we get good hints 
in the Bible. You see, John's knowledge of who Jesus is, it continues to expand and grow as time goes on. So we don't know exactly what he knew about Jesus at this point in time. Did he know that Jesus was sinless and therefore his Baptist didn't apply to him? I'd say probably. But what is likely even more at the front of John's mind is the fact that he knows that Jesus is the greater one. John's baptism anticipated the coming of the one who would have a greater baptism, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. How could this one submit to his baptism? After all, John says about Jesus, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He also says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John knows his role. He knows who he is in God's plan, and he knows who Jesus is in God's plan. He recognized that there was a changing of the God, and Jesus was the new God. Now, if you're not familiar with that phrase, it refers to the king or queen's guards changing shifts. You know, at Buckingham Palace, we, we used to have a queen, now we have a king. And one set of the guards on duty being replaced by a set of new guards. Now, these days, we say it to refer to a new era, a new age of history beginning. One that wasn't like the old one. And John recognized that Jesus was the one ushering in this new age. The theologian Don Carson puts it like this. Earlier, John had difficulty baptizing the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism. Now he has trouble baptizing Jesus because his baptism is not worthy of Jesus. God's ways can sometimes be baffling to us, can't they? Sometimes we think... No, God, I've got the idea of how this is supposed to work. And John the Baptist was confused about God's will here, but at least his confusion and resistance to God's will was a result of faith. He knew who Jesus was and therefore couldn't understand how Jesus' request fit with what he was doing. For us, too often, sadly, our resistance to God's will is due to a lack of faith. We seek to change what God is doing, not out of faith, but out of disbelief. We resist all that he is doing because we think we can see clearer than God and we doubt his will. As we'll see, John only needs a word from the Lord, which is enough to secure his obedience. May we also hear God's word and respond with trust and obedience. Jesus explains to John why it is happening like this in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. As far as explanations go, in my opinion, this isn't the most straightforward one that Jesus could have given. This sounds like one of those classic, you know, mystical sage answers that, you know, everybody nods along to. But nobody really understands what actually it means. Yes, yes, I see, I must, yeah, you know what I mean. 
And many have wandered down through the ages what exactly Jesus meant when he said, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, let me give us some pointers to help make sense of what Jesus is saying here. Firstly, it's important to realize that Jesus subtly agrees with John's assessment here by saying, let it be so for now. Notice that Jesus doesn't disagree with John. He doesn't say, no, John, your baptism is what I need right now. No, he simply says, let it be so for now. There are reasons for Jesus to submit to John's baptism at this point in time. And notice that when Jesus gives his answer, he says that it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. For the two of them, in what they are about to do, they are fulfilling all righteousness. So this moment, this act of John baptizing Jesus has a uniqueness to it that won't be repeated anywhere else, any other time. Jesus allows it because this baptism isn't going to be about Jesus confessing his sins and being ceremonially, ceremonially washed by the waters of baptism as it normally did with everybody else. No, both John and Jesus would be participating in something unique and historic. And in John baptizing Jesus, they will fulfill all righteousness. Now remember, fulfill is one of the key words in Matthew's gospel. We've already seen it come up a few times. God, through Matthew, has been preparing us in the first three chapters for how we should think about who Jesus is. And one of the key ways he's done that is by quoting Old Testament Scripture and saying the events of Jesus' life happen to fulfill those passages. So when we read this verse, it should set off a light bulb for us as we read. Because here, Jesus doesn't just fulfill certain passages he fulfills all righteousness. But what does that mean? It's hard to imagine what kind of meaning that phrase can have, hey? Righteousness doesn't sound like the kind of thing that can be fulfilled. Fulfilling a vision, perhaps, or a dream, or fulfilling a prophecy sounds normal, but not righteousness. How do you fulfill righteousness? Uh, you could be righteous by your very nature, as God is. Or you could be made righteous, as Romans 5 tells us. But how do you fulfill righteousness? In the Bible, righteousness refers to doing what is right, to being obedient to God's law. But it's not just about whether you did the right thing in your actions or not. Righteousness extends even beyond that to one's heart. That's why Jesus taught that our righteousness had to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, as he says in Matthew 5.20. You see, the, the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the scribes, they weren't too bad at obeying the law to the letter, but their hearts were far from God. Righteousness is just as much about your heart being in the right place as it is about doing the outward things correctly. 
And in the Bible, righteousness can also carry the sense of a person who is in right standing with God, even if they are not morally perfect, even if they are not perfect in what they do and in their heart orientation towards God. The righteous are sometimes referred to as the people who are accepted as righteous in God's sight. And perhaps the clearest example of this is the one that Paul picks up on in Romans when Genesis 15.6 says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. So what does it mean that John baptizing Jesus fulfills all righteousness? Well, remember that God is righteous. And so in order for someone to be acceptable before him, they must be righteous, either by their own righteous heart and works and perfection, or by it being counted to them. Those who confessed their sins and were baptized by John indicated a desire for this. But John's baptism didn't count them as righteous. Righteousness would come through Jesus. Allow me to read to you the verse I quoted earlier as part of the catechism question, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we've seen, Jesus was the Messiah who would come to fulfill the Old Testament. He would be the Messiah, the one that was prophesied, that was anticipated, that was looked forward to. Now listen to what the Old Testament had to say about what the Messiah would accomplish Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The coming Messiah, the reigning king, would execute justice and righteousness in the land. He would be called, the Lord is our righteousness. And how would he do this? By making his people righteous. By counting them as righteous. Isaiah 53 describes it like this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus would be the one through whom people from all nations, from all across the globe, could be counted as righteous by putting their faith in him. He would bear their iniquities at the cross. This is the good news that Jesus came preaching and teaching. You see, the Bible teaches that because each of us are unrighteous, 
born in sin, we deserve God's righteous wrath as a penalty for our sin. But Jesus came, the long prophesied Messiah King in the line of David, to suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, as 1 Peter 3.18 tells us. Meaning that the unrighteous, that's us, could be counted righteous before God by putting our faith in Christ and having His righteous record counted as our own while He receives the penalty of our sin on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus' baptism by John marks the beginning of His ministry, which would climax in His death and resurrection. That would be the very act that would secure the righteous status of God's people. Jesus would receive the penalty for our sin on the cross so that through faith in him, we could receive his righteousness. And now is the time to do that. Friend, if you are yet to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus for salvation, today is the day. Don't wait till you think you're ready or till you think you've got it together. You will never be. That's the point. We will never be righteous enough either in our deeds or in our hearts to be acceptable before a righteous God. That's why we need Jesus to stand in our place. If Jesus, if who Jesus is to you is just a nice guy with some great moral teaching, then who Jesus is to you does not reflect who Jesus really is. Come to him as he is, as his word reveals him to us, as the one who suffered as the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might be counted righteous. When Jesus was baptized, he identified with the people he came to save. Though he was righteous, he identified with the unrighteous. When we are baptized, We identify with our Savior. In baptism, we recognize our unrighteousness and our need to be saved from this body of death. So how does Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness? It anticipates and it symbolizes how the righteous one would secure righteousness for his people. It anticipates and it symbolizes how the righteous one would secure righteousness for his people. You see, the promised Messiah who would execute justice and righteousness for the Lord's people would be recognized in this moment. The one who would make many to be accounted righteous begins that work with this baptism. This is the start of Jesus' ministry and all he came to do. And all that he would do over the next three years of his life until his death on the cross and his resurrection would be foreshadowed right here in the baptism. This is the changing of the God. This is the beginning of the old covenant giving way to the new covenant, which will be founded in Jesus' blood. John baptizing Jesus was page one of volume two in God's grand story. 
And even if we might be confused a little bit about Jesus' explanation, John wasn't. Jesus' explanation was enough for him. Notice how only three words indicate to us that this was all John needed to hear. Then he consented. May we see who Jesus is. May we see all that he has done and secured for us and respond with a righteous trust and a righteous heart that is orientated towards him. Brothers and sisters, hear this word. Hear God's word in your situation. See who Jesus is. He is the King who reigns and the Savior who has made righteousness and right standing with God possible for you. Do you see that? He has borne our iniquities and achieved salvation from the penalty of sin and in exchange given us the gift of eternal life with Him. This is who Jesus is. Is this who he is to you? Because if this is the Jesus that you see and that you hold to and that you trust, then you know that he will never abandon you in life or in death. What you need to endure suffering, what you need to find purpose and meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in life is not more inspirational talks or warm, fuzzy feelings. It is seeing Jesus as he truly is. And the more you do so, the more you will see his love and his loveliness and his goodness and his mercy towards you. The more you will see how he is all that matters. The more your worldview will align with his truth. And the more who Jesus is, the more who Jesus actually is, aligns with, with, uh, with who he is to you, then the more everything else in this life will take its proper place. His word will be enough for every circumstance. What he has done will be enough to comfort you in everything. What he has promised in life and in death will be enough to see you finish the race. Is this who Jesus is to you? And if you're wondering if you can trust who Jesus is, if you can trust that what he's done and and, and all that he's promised is everything that I've just said, well, you're in luck. Because if there was any lingering doubt about who Jesus is, God left no room for doubt. And that brings us to our second section, the Son of God. Of God. Kids, do, do you ever find it a little bit frustrating when you tell one of your siblings something and they don't believe you? They think you're not right about it. Yeah, yeah, some nods. And do you find that if you go to dad and he's able to back up what you're saying, that you're able to turn to your siblings and say, see, I was right. Does that happen? Yeah, yeah. Well, in a way... Not perfectly, but in a way, God is about to do that here for Jesus. Let's read from verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, 
The heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew doesn't give us any details about the actual baptism itself, but simply talks about what happened when Jesus was baptized. And what happened when he was baptized? The heavens were opened to him. It may be that Jesus was the only one who saw what we see described in these next few verses, which is why it says, were opened to him. And if that's the case, then, well, Jesus likely told others about it. But in John 1.32, it seems like John the Baptist himself actually saw it too. So perhaps there was a sign that, that uh, perhaps this was a sign that John the Baptist and maybe even others saw and heard as well what Jesus sees here. Well, whatever the case, we know for sure that it happens and that God preserved it in his word here for Matthew's readers and for all of us who would read it down through the ages. And far more important is what it means. Why is this significant? I love this, these verses. As I'm sure you've heard me say before, you're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. You're not even going to find a detailed defense of this necessary and extremely important doctrine. But what you will find every now and again are manifestations and descriptions of it like this one. The Father speaks from heaven as the Spirit descends on the Son in the shape of a dove. Just sit back and marvel at that for a second. Here was a moment in time that was significant because of its authentication of Jesus and his life and ministry. But it was also one of those extremely rare moments where our triune God dropped in on space-time and touched our world in a unique way. Father, Son, Spirit, visibly manifested in one moment. Notice how Matthew actually highlights the importance of these manifestations of the Father and the Spirit separately. He notes them by saying, behold, before describing both the Spirit and the voice. And so even though as a whole it's something special, Matthew highlights the significance of each one. And we'll get to why. And in one of the beautiful demonstrations of God's design in the book of Matthew, the Trinity shows up not just here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, but also at the very end of it, which, as it so happens, is also at the very end of the book. The last two verses of Matthew say, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Trinity doesn't show up there like it does here, but there's an undeniable connection between the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the completion of it at the end of Matthew. Both of them have baptism and the Trinity. And everything between our passage here in Matthew 3 and, and Matthew 28, the end of it, shows us how and why Jesus is the fulfillment of all righteousness and the Son of God. 
how Jesus fulfills the Scriptures is spoken of over and over and over again in Matthew's Gospel. And so it's fitting that the book finishes with the statement that Jesus will be with his disciples always to the end of the age. Because Jesus ushered in a new age. And with his ascension, he confirmed that. And us today live in the same age that Jesus began. These are what Christians have called for a long time, the last days. This is the age before the age to come. We are living in volume two. Eternity, the age to come, is volume three. And volume three completes the trilogy. Brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Jesus is with us both in volumes two and three. He is with us now and he will be with us in eternity. The Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. The Spirit of God, also known as the Holy Spirit. Why a dove? We don't know for sure. There are probably some connections with some Old Testament references. You might remember there is a dove that goes out from the ark, but I won't go into those this morning. The important thing to recognize is that the Spirit took on some kind of shape that looked obviously like a dove. But what's far more important than that is the fact that the Spirit came and rested on Jesus And this is significant, not just because it means that the Holy Spirit was with Jesus and empowering his life and ministry. It's significant because it's yet another sign of authenticity about who Jesus is. Remember that John said that the one coming after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This isn't just something John thought of himself. Listen to these words from Isaiah 11 about the coming Messiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord has descended and rested upon the Lord's anointed one. And this also goes together with what happens in verse 17. You see, the beautiful thing about verse 17 is that it's not just that God speaks from heaven and confirms that Jesus truly is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. But that very quote is yet another allusion to the Old Testament and further confirmation of the fact that Jesus came to fulfill it. It once again points to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. God tells us who Jesus is and in so doing draws upon Old Testament imagery. And the closest texts that he draws upon here are Psalm 2 verse 7 and Isaiah 42 verse 1. Let me read them to you. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And these are appropriate texts because Psalm 2 speaks of how the Lord's anointed king, his son, will rule over all. And Isaiah 42 talks about how the Lord's chosen servant will bring justice to the nations. And both tap into who the Messiah will be and what he will do. God's words at Jesus' baptism spell out for us what Scripture is pointing to about the Messiah King in the line of David. That is, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. If you'd like to hear a word from the Lord about who Jesus is, here is, quite literally, a word from the Lord. New Testament scholar R.T. France has this to say about God's revelation of who Jesus is. From this point on, Matthew's readers have no excuse for failing to understand the significance of Jesus' ministry, however long it may take the actors in the story to reach the same Christological conclusion. He's basically saying that, that some will recognize Jesus as the Christ throughout the Gospel of Matthew and others will reject him. But for all who read Matthew's Gospel, for all who read God's Word now, It is undeniable who Jesus is. You cannot avoid who Jesus is. And if, after 17 chapters of Matthew's gospel, you still haven't gotten it, well, God repeats it again on the mountain where Jesus shines brightly with the glory of God, known as often the Mount of Transfiguration. At that time, just to make sure, God says the same thing, and then he adds an important instruction in case you haven't quite caught it yet. Listen to him. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is him. Jesus is the one who would fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is the son of David, the promised Messiah, the coming king. Jesus is the son of God. the beloved Son of God. It pleased God to give him to the world as the one upon whom his spirit would rest, who would bring justice to the world, who would establish righteousness among his people. This is him. Is this who he is to you? Listen to the kind of son he is. Continuing on in Isaiah 42, the verse, the chapter that is alluded to. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. How does Jesus bring forth justice? How does Jesus fulfill righteousness? by embodying God's mercy and compassion. You see, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the reigning King. But He is also the suffering servant and the merciful Saviour who does not crush the bruised and the weak. In fact, He would lay down His life 
for the bruised and the weak. Perhaps you feel like you're a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick yourself. You may feel like uh, your, your lack of righteousness when you look to Jesus is just all too evident to you. You may feel like your trust in him and the simple obedience to his word that you know is what you ought to do is severely lacking. That far too often you, you argue with God about his will and try to resist it. The older you get, that will only become more and more evident to you, as it certainly has to me. Beloved, he does not condemn you. He came to bear your iniquities so that you might be counted as righteous. It is because of him that you can become his beloved. It is through the Father's beloved Son that the unrighteous can become his beloved children that they may be counted righteous. And each one of his children who turns to him in times of weakness and despair, he will not ever turn away. Richard Sibbs puts it this way in his meditation on these verses in Isaiah 42. He sheds tears for those that shed his blood. And now he makes intercession in heaven for weak Christians standing between them and God's anger. He is a meek king. He will admit mourners into his presence, a king of poor and afflicted persons. As he has beams of majesty, so he has a heart of mercy and compassion. That is our king. The King of kings and the suffering servant. The new God who brought in the new covenant in his blood. Brothers and sisters, we now live in the age of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven. The age where righteousness has been fulfilled. The age where Jesus has made it possible for all people everywhere to repent and turn away from their sin and be counted righteous before God. The age where righteousness before God is possible because the Son of God went to the cross, was pierced for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities. In an incredible act of justice and mercy, meeting at the cross, Jesus took on the sin of his people so that they might receive his righteousness by faith. And the same Holy Spirit that rested on Jesus now lives in us to increasingly make us more righteous throughout our lives till the very day when Jesus returns and begins volume three in the age to come. On that day and in that age, the righteousness that we have received in Christ and that we increasingly grow in by his spirit today will become one completed, glorified work. Praise God for that day.
on that day, we won't just be declared righteous or be growing in righteousness by God's wondrous grace. We will be righteous. And all because of the righteous Son of God who fulfilled all righteousness. Is this who Jesus is to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you only too aware of our unrighteousness. And Father, we praise you because you have made it possible for us to be counted righteous. We thank you for our Lord, our King, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. who suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, the one who knew no sin, being made sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, too often we, we look to Jesus, we look at Jesus and we see a far diminished Jesus. We see a Jesus of our own preferences, not the glorious King, not the wondrous Son of God, not the incredible, incredibly merciful and compassionate suffering servant that he is. So Lord, please open our eyes to see him clearly, to respond truly, to have hearts orientated towards you. May we turn to him. May we rejoice in him. May we hope in him. And look forward to the day when we will one day be with him. We ask this in his name.